computer. This is data. I'm an android. I'm a basketball. I was processing all of the information. Processing. One of those idiots who believe in analytics. Rangers pick basketball. Analytics was crap. Does not compute. Just because you got good stats doesn't mean you're a good team. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next edition of the Lakers Exceptionalism Podcast. I'm your host for today, Tim. You know me as Crane, just make basketball on Twitter. And today's pod is going to be a short solo one where we talk about March Madness. Now, this will give us, I know, for me personally, the Lakers falling off uh, because of the silly structure the NBA has with the playoffs. Like, they're going to make the play in, but they're not. This isn't a, this isn't a good basketball team. Uh, and they're not taking the process steps they need to. The some of the health things they need to happen don't look like they're going to happen. Like it's just at this point, it is what it is. And I'm shifting. At least this past week, I've shifted my focus away from highlighting areas of opportunity and trying to you know dig into film and find those little silver linings. And have instead <laughs> been scouting. I well actually more than 68 college basketball teams. I scouted probably like 75 or so. Uh, and in preparation for March Madness, this is my favorite time of the year. Today, Thursday, March 17th, and then tomorrow, Friday, the 18th, the round of 64 are my favorite two days of the year over my birthday, Christmas, Easter, Valentine's Day. doesn't matter. It's, you, you get just like game seven after game seven after game seven happening at the same time, basically, with the single elimination tournament. And you're invested in all of them. It's not like watching three, you know, two game sevens back to back in the NBA playoffs. It's they're all happening at the same time. You care about all of them because you have a bracket filled out. And at this point in the process, there's all everyone has that little hope that you know maybe I'll win my bracket pool. Maybe I'll have the first perfect bracket ever. Things like that. That you know, for most people, won't happen uh, for winning their bracket pool. For nobody's going to happen in terms of getting a perfect bracket. But there's that hope. There's that newness. It's like a new season, basically. So there's hope plus pressure plus everything happening at the same time. It's just the perfect mix, and it's like all day. It's good, like Central Time. It's from like 11 a.m. until like midnight. And and actually today I'll be at uh, the second session of games in Fort Worth. Uh, not too far from from uh, where I am. Uh, I mean, it's the cheapest it's going to be for me. I won't won't need like a hotel or you know a flight. So just be able to make the the trek over there, drive over, see the games. And I'm excited about that. But I'm also at the same time like a little bummed that I won't be able to have a bunch of screens in front of me and watch everything. So I hope you enjoy it. Uh, if you don't like college basketball, you don't care. This may not be the most exciting pod for you, but. I wanted to take this time to talk about the process I take when scouting these teams. And I take a similar process, I, I just with scouting in general. And, and it's the, the volume of teams that you need to scout for this certainly changes how in-depth you go to an extent. And actually this year, uh, I made the decision to, instead of writing, like in the past, I've written like 100 page or 80 page write-ups on you know explaining every single team what they do what they're good at all that instead of focusing my time there i spent more time digging into the film and i think that will lead to enhanced success but this is something we've done pretty well with in the past several years since we started doing this we've had two 99th percentile brackets last year 
we had both the teams in the title, but if Baylor would have lost to Gonzaga, we would have had a 99th percentile bracket. So that one was frustrating. But, I mean, I always recommend to people, like, you know, use this bracket, but then, like, sw- flip the uh, title pick because that game just means so much in the scoring. Um, so, it, and, like, I mean, it, we've done well, made a lot of money uh, picking upset picks like Oral Roberts last year. Uh, North Texas is upset of Purdue. Syracuse is upset of San Diego State. All things that like could be out of nowhere to some people, and and there's almost this this really in you know interesting intrigue about March Madness due to those like crazy upsets that nobody saw coming. But like you should have seen Oral Roberts run the Sweet Sixteen. Our models did. We did on film looking at who they were facing with Ohio State and Florida, how those teams attack, how those teams defend. Oral Roberts was their kryptonite. It was the perfect team to beat them, and. You know, if you got them at like plus a thousand or plus twelve hundred or whatever we did, you know, that's a lucrative uh, gamble there. North Texas upsetting Purdue. You know, hello post defense and and screen coverages again that matters. Syracuse upsetting San Diego State. If you're playing a team that runs a bunch of zone and you can't attack his zone, you're no good at attacking his zone. That matters. Like things like that. It it's not like to some extent there's a simplicity to it, but it takes real in depth research and identifying really what's going on. And, and I was on a pod earlier this week talking about some of this process, but I'm going to dig more into it now. And by the time this comes out, lo- brackets will be locked in. So I am more willing to actually share what we ended up going with, how it looked. And instead of just kind of like beating around the bush and talking vaguely about what that looked like. So when scouting teams, it was important for me in, so we, so I'll start with this to start with, we had our model like actually running and I didn't look at those numbers. Those numbers were run separately. Uh, my best friend ran those numbers and he had those ready to go. And so that wasn't like influencing my film analysis. But then I went through, did my film analysis, and then we came back together and he shared, all right, here's what the model had. And then I would share, all right, well, here's, you know, from what I gleaned, here's who has an edge, how much of an edge it is, how many points I think this edge might be worth. And then we'd come up with like the overall pick. We, we In our bracket package, we have the model only picks, which have been really good. Uh, but then we have our like official BBI bracket, which has been even better. And so with the film analysis, it's always good to, to have that grounding in data because there were teams like UConn against uh, New Mexico State, I believe it is. New Mexico State has a lot of scheme advantages in that game, but I don't think they're going to be able to overcome... I think uh, UConn's favored by seven points. And like, that's not what I look at when doing this. Um, But we had them uh, also, UConn also winning from a model standpoint, model standpoint by around that. So it was like, all right, they, you know, they're at a disadvantage from a scheme standpoint, but probably not enough to actually lose this game. Whereas there are some other teams where like the model said it's a one point game or two point game. And then there's a big scheme edge. That is a much more likely situation to have an upset. So being able to have some grounding in data, so it's not just a myopic, like, I don't know if I'm using that word right. It's not a like single lens, single focus of like who has a scheme edge, because there's more to basketball than that. And, and you want to have that data grounding. So I think using both sides of this for the analysis really helps give us an edge. And maybe three days from now, this is going to look silly and we're going to stink in March, but we've had success in the past. And at the end of the day, each of these things, like you're betting on college kids, like some kid might not have like slept well. Maybe like the fire alarm went off at their hotel at four in the morning, like all kinds of things. Maybe they're having relationship problems. Maybe, maybe a family member is sick. Maybe they're sick. All of these things that like info we don't have and we can't make decisions on 
um, that can sway the outcomes of games along with just normal variants and shots and things like that. Like you can put in all this work from a process standpoint to then have a team you picked to win a game lose just because they like, for whatever reason that day, couldn't hit shots they, they normally hit. And that's just part of the game. So that's that's why, you know, not expecting a perfect bracket. No one's going to get a perfect bracket. It's just, it's such a difficult thing in a single elimination tournament. But the best you can do is have all that pertinent information, have the best process possible, consider injuries, consider rest, consider all these things, consider the scheme, consider the talent, uh, understand the team's tendencies, understand how they attack certain situations, and then make the most informed decisions possible. It won't be, the, it may not be the best bracket, but it's likely going to be one of the most informed brackets you can you can find. And so going through the film on these teams, and I'll note from a model standpoint, we also do look at like team style and it's not just like raw efficiencies. If you're modeling off of like Kempom, which has great value or Bartorvik, which has great value, uh, just by those alone, you're not going to get to a granular level that I think can give you the, well, it won't give you the best odds of success. There's a reason, you know, making brackets off of those doesn't, there, there's a ceiling to what you can really get there. Uh, but digging in with the models we have, looking at play types, understanding, you know, zone and press and all of these elements that matters. And that's why the math does as well as it does along with, you know, just us improving that over time and learning lessons after misses, um, from a process standpoint and just refining that over time. But looking at the film, to finally answer this, looking at the film, we want to look at what do the teams like to do in offense? The offense is going to dictate, in many cases, what the flow of their offense looks like. Like Notre Dame runs a bunch of ball screens. There are some teams, Wyoming posts up a ton. <laughs> uh, some teams, Davidson, they have a bunch of off-screen action. There are other teams that isolate a bunch. It, understanding what does that diet look like is important because that's your starting point. Now, if you're facing a defense that runs zone or press or something or defends in a unique way, you can see these change a bit, but understanding what do they like to do? And then even looking at like the game by game numbers to see, all right, are they consistently a heavy ball screen team? Are they consistently a press team? Do they consistently run zone or is it fluctuate? Because that's important as well. There will be teams that... Uh, like I remember uh, any, you know, a lesson learned for me was uh, I think two years ago, we, well, two years ago, there was no tournament, two tournaments ago. So three years ago, we missed on one pick because uh, an underdog ran zone that we weren't expecting to run zone. Cause on the season, they didn't run all that much zone, but they ran zone a bunch. I forget who it was. This was three years ago, but looking back and trying to figure out like, how the hell did we miss on this? looking at their game by game level data, you can see, oh, they didn't run zone for a lot of the season, but they started to use it more late and they used it much more against teams that they were underdogs against or, or they felt they needed that extra edge. So that right or wrong on their side for us informs us that, okay, we should anticipate they're probably going to lean into, you know, they're going to be them and they're going to do what they do. And that doesn't mean they're going to play their average, you know, average uses of, of zone for every game moving forward. It's going to be based on what they think they need to do. So, so that informs some of this as well. So you want to understand what teams like to do, how often they like to do it and, and how, you know, how much that varies game by game. Defensively, you want to know, do they press? LSU presses, UAB presses, other teams press. What kinds of press do they run? Is it a, a token press where they, you know, they're going to be in a full court man-to-man -man, and as soon as you get the ball inbounded, they just jog back. They're just trying to make you slow down. Is it a 1-2-2 token press where they're in a zone full court press, 
maybe a three-quarter court press, not trying to steal the ball, but just trying to make you burn clock. That matters, but it's a different situation than a press that is like a 2-2-1 or a 1-2-1-1 or something that is super aggressive and is actively trying to trap and is going to lead to more turnovers potentially, but can also lead to transition buckets for, for I guess, either team. So understanding, do they press? How often do they press? What kind of press do they run? And how good are they at it? That that matters. Um, and then offensively, how do they handle different kinds of press? This is this is the part where having synergy film access really matters because I can go back and I can look at film and say, all right, you know, when the hell did they face this press? How did they go, you know, how did they handle it? I'm not just looking at their overall like turnover percentage numbers or trying to assume how good of ball handlers they are because how you attack a press matters. Same thing with zone. And, and so zone, do they run a zone on defense? What kinds of zone? How effective are they at those zones? Offensively, how do they attack the different kinds of zone? A team like Bryant, they run a bunch of zones but they are not very good at any of them. They're not committed to any of them. They uh, And I think you can run multiple zones and be good at them. This team doesn't really seem to care about defense. Um, and we saw them losing their first four game. You know, they, they threw a bunch of stuff out there, but they're half-assing it <laughs> constantly. And so they're not a very effective group at doing that, but there are other teams that run specific kinds of zone that are more or less uh, annoying, like Norfolk State. They play Baylor and... Uh, Baylor has some potential injury situations they need to monitor, may have some guys out. Also, they're going to be playing a team in Norfolk State that, like, they're not very good, but they play a matchup zone defense that is incredibly confusing and is the most efficient half-court defense in the country. Or Actually, I think at this point it might be second, first or second. And watching the film, it was hard for me to understand what was going on or what should be going on. It was. It seemed harder for the defense to understand what they should be doing, but it was really confusing for the offense to, in real time, try to even know what was going on. Like, there's no, you can't have any instincts when you can't anticipate anything because you have no freaking clue what's going to be happening. There were times guys were open, but it was just not expected, and so they didn't get the ball. Um, so that is, you know, a situation where like I don't think they're going to be able to overcome a 21 point projected, you know, loss because of that, but. I can see this game being interesting at like halftime. Uh, if they were facing another team that wasn't Baylor, that was more vulnerable, that could be a potential upset team. So things like that really matter. Offensively, how teams attack zone matters. Uh, good example, Kansas has not been good against zone this year, last year, looking at the film. I don't love their process for attacking zone. And they haven't had to face a ton of zone this year. Um, but enough that like, I don't feel good about it. And so if they get matched up with Iowa, which is what we have projected in, what is it, the Sweet 16 Elite Eight, we've got Iowa winning that game. Um, and, and that was part of it. Uh, so that kind of understanding who presses and who runs zone, which ones do they use, how do the offenses, offenses attack it, like that matters. Looking at UAB playing Houston, uh, that is an upset pick we have. And the model had that game basically as a tie. Um, but we're anticipating UAB runs more zone than they have in the past, um, or, or they run zone at, you know, matching their higher frequencies of zone they've run in previous games in the past. Uh, and they're a team that runs, well, so press, they press, they run 1-3-1 zone. And the last time Houston played a 1-3-1 was the sixth game of the season in December, December 3rd, I think, uh, against a team that stunk at running it and still were absolutely clueless, had awful shot quality. Um, they, Houston is an offense that usually wins offensively, not by good scheme, but by dominating the boards. And 
they, against that team in December, their alignment to attack the zone didn't have many bodies in the paint, so they didn't get those boards. And the team they were playing against was an awful defensive rebounding team. UAB, re, you know, rebounds decently on defense. And, you know, this makes me think that edge that Houston normally has may not be there. Um, UAB also runs a 1-2-2 full court press that causes a lot of turnovers. Houston, at times this year, has struggled with more aggressive presses. I didn't see them face a 1-2-2 anytime recently. We saw Memphis run more man-to-man uh, -man stuff against them. And, you know, they had a game that was good against it. They had a game that was awful against it. Uh, so there, there's a wild card there, but that is something that could be in UAB's favor. Um, and so I can, I'll talk more about this matchup later because there are other elements that lean UAB, but, but we'll get to them when we get to them. Getting back to the, the bigger picture things I look at. So for the teams that offensively like to post up a bunch, anticipating defenses may send help, you know, on the post against them. How do they handle that help? And are they a team that like absolutely has no idea what they're doing, like the Lakers a couple years ago and, you know, this year? Um, or do they do a good job at countering that? Because that really differs team by team. And that can be a really big thing. Uh, defensively, do they send help on post-ups defensively? Like some teams, they're going to play behind you and they're not going to send any help. And it is truly 1v1. And if they're going to beat you, they're going to beat you. There are other teams that if, you know, they get, there's a mismatch in the post, they are going to front the post. They're going to have guys on the backside looking to intercept lobs into the post or like post catch. They're going to send traps from the, the weak side or the strong side, or maybe they just dig down and kind of have a perimeter player lunge at the post player trying to disrupt them, make them pick up their dribble, but aren't fully committing to a trap. So the kind of help matters, how frequently they send that matters, when they send that matters. And then offensively, how do you attack those different kinds of of uh, defense and didn't look at that for every single team for the teams that rarely post up didn't really you know that doesn't matter I'm going to spend my time efficiently but for the teams that do post up a bunch that will matter and that did matter in in some of our picks here and then another big thing is so so defending post ups how often they post up how they attack help same thing with isolation and then pick and roll coverages are another big one um, what coverages do they use to defend ball screens are they a drop coverage team? Are they a switch team? Are they a show and recover team? Do they weak high ball screens? Are they icing side ball screens? Um, do they do any mix of these? There are some teams that do one or two things. There are some teams that do everything. Um, and that is good to know because that really, really helps. Because unlike in the NBA where you can go into a game and we might see a team get their screen coverage attacked in the first quarter and they'll, they'll just change it. They'll switch it. They'll make tweaks. At the college level, we see much less frequent adjusting. There will be some adjusting and the better adjusting coaches tend to, you know, float up towards the NBA level, but there will be teams that are going to do the same thing no matter what. They're, we're going to do what we do and we're not going to adjust no matter what. We're going to stick to our identity, which is, which is silly to me. Like there's a sticking to your identity shouldn't be like showing and recovering on ball screens. That's not a very good identity. That's, that's not, that's a misunderstanding of how you can really leverage identity to, to help motivate. But understanding what they use and how well they, you know, what, how versatile they are with their different coverages matters. And then offensively, how do they attack coverages? A team like uh, Villanova, they attack showing and recovering well. They do not attack drop coverage well. They play a team in Arizona that's going to run some drop coverage. That's going to be a problem. Uh, Arizona also runs some uh, switching 
And that is something that, like, Gonzaga doesn't do well against. And, that you know, that can be concerning if they potentially match up in the finals. Uh, UCLA switches, and that is Baylor's kryptonite. And so we have UCLA beating Baylor in, what, the round of 32, I believe it is, um, whenever they match up. Those are important things to know. And especially because ball screens happen so frequently. Notre Dame, they're a team that runs ball screens like 40% of the time. So who they're facing and how they defend really matters. Um, understanding which teams, some teams, you know, are really good at attacking drop coverage, have no idea how to attack switching or vice versa, or, you know, showing and recovering or whatnot. So understanding those strengths and weaknesses is really, really important. Um, and, and doing so allows you to know like, Hey, Baylor isn't very good against switching. Kansas doesn't attack zone. Well, Nova doesn't attack drop. Well, these are things that, you know, you can stick two teams efficiencies or Ken Palm or whatever you want up next up next to each other. And it's only going to tell you the big picture. You have to get into the details of how they arrive to that in order to find those little opportunities. Uh, picking a, a sleeper in March Madness shouldn't be like, oh, well, you know, this team's hot and they've got two good scores that are probably going to score well. It's That doesn't tell me anything. Um, it should sound more like, okay, the favorite has X and Y weaknesses and the underdog is built to beat those weaknesses. And that's, you know, going to be a problem. So understanding then those strengths, the weaknesses, what those kryptonite elements are, who happens to have them or do them, we're in a much better spot to, to identify those upsets and figure out those, you know, later in the tournament, who's going to be, be winning. Um, and from that, put together our bracket and getting back to that Houston UAB matchup. Uh, so we talked about UAB's defense in the one three one zone, how they rebound well, the one two two full court press, all of those things that have given Houston trouble. Houston, or I'm sorry, UAB also has on the other end of the court, uh, you know, some decent talent. And I mean, they're a top 50 Ken Palm team. This isn't this isn't an awful team that just has some scheme advantages. This is a good team. This is a very good team that has some scheme advantages. They have an elite pick and roll offense headed by a guy in Jordan Walker who shoots, let's see, 42% on about like 200 pull-up three-pointers this season in like 30 games. Uh, he's going to shoot a lot of pull-up threes. Uh, and, and he does it against drop, obviously. He does it really well in ISO. He gets to his shot well in that situation. And showing and recovering or catch hedges, he'll like string them out, turn them into, uh, he'll string catch hedges out and turn them into ISO and then attack. Uh, against a show and recover, he does a good job of still getting decent distance. And then as the big man showing starts to retreat, he'll just wait for you to put your hand down and then shoot right over you. Um, that's important. That's good to know. Uh, Houston likes to weak high ball screens. That shouldn't matter all that much for him. He, he can go both ways. He can shoot well both ways. Uh, he scores well versus switching, which Houston will do. Um, UAB beats shown recover pick and roll defense really, really well by just spamming wing ball screens, slipping those, getting numbers advantages. They'll string out hedges. They'll, they'll shoot those pull-up threes when the big goes to recover. Like They do a lot of things that attack that well, and they match up well against you know what Houston likes to do. Houston is also a very elite and disruptive post defense, which has helped get them to those overall good defensive numbers you see for them. The thing is, UAB rarely posts up. So like that, that doesn't matter this game. Um, so that's really interesting. UAB, they play, you know, they, they are very good on the offensive boards. They rarely turn the ball over. They play fast on offense. They're going to be the disruptor and the smarter team in this game. And they have the personnel to capitalize. Now, all that said, we still have it like projected to be a super close game. They very, very well could lose this game. But for the value in going after that, 
I guess more from an individual game standpoint than a bracket standpoint, there's a ton of value there. Um, Houston, you know, with my pre-work, they were a team I highlighted as a fraud team that does stuff well. A lot of what they do offensively doesn't work against like good teams. It won't work against real teams. It won't work against smart teams. And then defensively, they're who they are and there are weaknesses to that. And you just have to find the right team that's going to attack those weaknesses in, in order to make them vulnerable. Moving on to the next round, we have UAB beating Illinois for, for some similar reasons. Like they're going to really attack you. Uh, Illinois' drop coverage with, with Kofi Coburn. They're going to eviscerate that. Uh, and and I just, <laughs> this is a team that can make the Sweet 16. This is this year's Oral Roberts, potentially. And again, they could lose. Like they can have a poor shooting day. They can have a guy get in foul trouble. Like there's so much that can go wrong. It's March Madness. It's a single game thing. But there should be this should be a good game. We'll see what ends up happening, but that is one of our larger upset picks. Um, let's see what else do we have. We have Colgate over Wisconsin for you know similar like hey they eviscerate what you like to do defensively and what you like to do offensively. They defend really well. Virginia Tech is a team we have making quite a bit of a run. UCLA is a really in- interesting, exciting team. Them in Iowa, I really enjoy watching. UCLA attacks screen coverages about as well as anybody. Uh, Virginia Tech does that decently well. Um, I mean, there are some exciting teams. Uh, you'll have to go back and look at what our actual bracket is. I'll, I'll get that posted in the Discord. But that's a bit on, I guess, some of what goes into what we get to. Um, in our finals, we have... So our final four is Gonzaga, Arizona... Air, uh, I'm sorry. Gonzaga, Arizona, Iowa, and UCLA. And then we have Arizona beating Gonzaga in the finals. And this is an interesting one and I think worth digging into a bit more. Uh, Gonzaga has been a... Like, they've been the best team this year. They have the best data. They're putting up like 100 points on some crap teams in conference. They've fared well out of conference. Like, they've got talent they run a good scheme like they're set up well the thing is they have been much worse this year playing switching defenses as Arizona does due to just weak scheme attacking it plus they just don't handle iso and post up help situations well and Arizona sends help in both of those pretty aggressively and Gonzaga's normal offense being able to just by default manufacture easy looks against drop coverage which you disproportionately see in their conference uh, and showing and recovering, they're not going to, like, I don't think Arizona is going to go into this game and run the stuff that Gonzaga is good at attacking. They're, they're going to go into this game switching and mix in some other stuff, but you have to be able to understand what's in their toolkit, how smart are they at deploying it, and, and realize that Arizona is probably not going to be running stuff that Gonzaga is good at attacking. Another big element here, looking at some just like key players, is... When you look at like Andrew Nemhard, uh, I think his first name is Andrew, um, him and I think Rizier Bolden is the other one. Um, they're two guys that are great pull-up three-point shooters. They do that against drop coverage. That That is really where they do that. Understand like they that's a good shot they get. Understanding where they get that shot is important. And that's oftentimes where they get that shot. That shot's not going to be there against this team unless they, unless Arizona stupidly, you know, is running that drop coverage, which is still very good at. It's just not what you want to do against Gonzaga and it's what Gonzaga faces with a lot of the teams they play in conference, even the good ones and, and beat up on. Uh, looking at other individual players, Chet Holmgren, he's, I mean, have you, I hope you've watched Arizona this year. They've got some dudes with their front court. Um, 
I think Bio Balo, I, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name. He's the same height as Chet. He has 65 pounds on him. <laughs> he's, this man is a, a seven foot tank. Um, I mean, I have a hard time seeing him not putting Chet in like a body bag uh, going after offensive rebounds or, or like posting up against him. Like that is going to be a problem. Um, Coloco is their other center who is taller than Chet and then also has like 40 pounds on him. Holmgren, like he's, he's very good. I'm not trying to say like, oh, he's skinny. So he's not good. Like he's very good. He hasn't faced too many teams this year that for all 40 minutes are going to have a guy his height or taller than him that also has like 30 to 65 pounds on him. Um, that's going to be an advantage for, for Arizona from a physical standpoint. Now with them switching, you're going to see Chet, you're going to see Drew Timmy. They're going to have opportunities to post up smaller players. And the thing that, that then becomes important is how does Arizona defend when their guards are posted up and they aggressively send help. They stunt on isolations from the perimeter and they aggressively send help and they recover really well when teams try to post up their guards. Um, Gonzaga is going to be able to space the floor. The issue with that is Arizona has two seven footers they'll have on the court. Um, and so it's not a, you know, it's not like Utah Jazz where like, if you can stick Rudy Gobert in the corner defensively, their defense starts to fall apart. This is a team that has two seven footers and Timmy is someone that like can't shoot. So you can sag off of him a bit. Um, and Holmgren can shoot. So, so his guy will be on him, but expect Arizona to really, really win defensively in the paint and offensively in the paint, I believe. I think they're going to win that rebounding battle. They've got those physical advantages. Schematically, they're, they're going to do well against Gonzaga. And then understand that Timmy's top two ways of attacking in the half court are rolling, which he gets when teams play aggressive screen coverages, which won't happen in this game. And then as a post player, the thing is with him as a power forward posting up, he's usually up against guys that are like 6'8", 6'9", 6'7", 6'5". He's going to be posting up against a guy who's seven feet tall and as a power forward. So that's going to be a problem. Uh, so it, like all of the top players for Gonzaga, the things they like to do, the things they do well, aren't things that tend to happen or are enabled by how Arizona plays defense. I'm not, to, I'm not saying they're all going to have bad games, but I can understand why they would struggle in this situation. If you look at like, Go back and watch the film on Gonzaga against Texas Tech earlier this season. That is probably the closest defense to what Arizona is going to show Gonzaga in terms of scheme. And that was a team that had like, they're switching with like 6'9", six, 6'8", six, 6'7", six, front court guys. This is a team in Arizona that has seven footers, guys that are bigger than seven feet tall. Um, but even against Texas Tech and that switching defense, Gonzaga had no clue what they were doing. They got a bunch of bad shots. They did not attack the scheme well. And if Texas Tech had any semblance of an offense in that, like in general, I'll say, they would have won that game. They scored like 50 points. Um, but that very clearly slowed down Gonzaga. And I think that is more important and more valuable to us in analyzing that and other games they play switching defenses compared to how Gonzaga as a whole or specific players on their teams performed against like Pacific or some other teams that just aren't very good right now. And they put up like 100 points on them, 115 points on them. That's... Eh. So I really like that matchup. Um, I mean, Gonzaga has been really, really good this year. They lit up awful teams. They lit up some good teams. It's just a really bad scheme matchup for them. And Arizona on the other side of the court should have success doing what they do. They're not the most dynamic offense, but they're going to win at the paint. They're going to win around the rim. They're going to win on the boards. 
They're going to draw fouls. They have some like really, really good players. Uh, they're they're going to have success in the post. They're a team that I, I, I mean, for at times as much as their offense can look clogged up, they're really smart about like post pinning. And, and instead of the post player trying to get in front of the defender, get behind the defender. One, so that the post feed is just a lob in. If they catch, they dunk it. And two, and by the way, this team leads college basketball in dunks. And two, um, oh, and they're an elite shot blocking team. And two, if you're driving and the offensive player has the inside position, they're sealing off that defender. So you see a lot of drives into what looks like traffic that doesn't end up really mattering because the defensive players are sealed and they literally cannot defend the rim given where that they're where they're standing. So that matters, and then that also gives Arizona a really good rebounding position. So. Uh, for a lot of reasons, I think that matches up well for them. Another thing to consider, at least given who we're anticipating is is in these games, Arizona has a, I mean, uh, let's see. So we have Arizona playing Wright State, they'll destroy. Seton Hall, they should destroy. UAB, who they match up really well with and they should destroy. Villanova, who doesn't attack drop coverage well. Um, and then Iowa, who has not a very good defense and, and Arizona should fare well against them. Gonzaga on the other side has Georgia State, who they should destroy. Memphis, who can be a very interesting team. We have them playing Vermont in the Sweet 16. We have Vermont beating Arkansas and then UConn. Uh, then we have Gonzaga having to play Duke and then playing UCLA. Gonzaga has a tougher path, at least given what we're projecting, even though they, they get a, a 13 seed in Vermont, who's, who's a pretty good team. They're an underseeded team. Memphis, they're a nine seed in this tournament. Over the past like two months, they've been like a top nine team in the country. So that is a tough early matchup. So that also somewhat factors into this. But even without that, Arizona has the advantages. And you can't, like, if our, it was our model alone or basically any other model, it's going to say Gonzaga should win this game. But you have to understand what goes into that. And for these reasons, it's really, really looking like Arizona's got a really great shot. So that's all I'm going to share for now. We'll, we'll talk more later on this. I'll share more in the Discord on this. But I'm going to head out. Game start in a few minutes. Finally, shout out to our friends of the podcast. Um, well, shout out to our friend of the podcast, Mike H., for generously supporting our pod as an area sp arena sponsor. And shout outs to Zach Harris, QDadio, and iPod Shuffle for living the high life with us in the owner's box. Also, shout outs to our courtside and lower bowl crew who support what we do here. It really, really keeps us going. And uh, anyone else that wants to get in on the love, you can find details on how to support us and our private Discord by going to tinyurl.com slash support LakersXPod. That's tinyurl.com slash support LakersXPod or LakersXPod, all one word. So that's all for today. I'm going to get going, but have a wonderful March Madness, a great weekend, and Tom and I will be back with you soon. Take care.